Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast. I am news correspondent Sarah King. I'm joined in studio by political correspondent Gavin Riley. Hey Sarah, how are you? Good. And my fellow news correspondent Richard Chambers. Hello. I always feel like it's very formal when we do this sort yes, of thing. It is. <laughs> we just appeared and we all just hadn't seen each other for that. Why is it our instinct yeah, to get, we need to get into fits of giggles when we're doing intros? Why do we do such a big intro? Maybe we should we look don't. at that. Just go straight into it. Let's get straight. Yeah, Let's just jump right in as yeah. all the podcasters would say. Let's get right to it. Um, so this week uh, a lot of people, we've spoke, spoken a lot about Motaz and uh, I suppose this week a lot of people will have seen that he has now been evacuated from Gaza. This is one of the uh, main journalists who has been bringing us sort of those live unedited pictures uh, from inside Gaza. Richard, he's been taken to Doha in the last couple of days. It was quite emotional to see those scenes of him saying goodbye to his friends. It really was and I'm sure it was a very difficult um, personal decision. I think he alluded to that in his video uh, where he announced that he would be leaving and he took off his press jacket, something which I think needs to be preserved, that particular jacket. Mm -hmm. Um, So iconic is the wrong word, but it's just been so tied to the wider world's understanding of what's happened in Gaza. Um, And yeah, you can see the personal toll that it has taken for him now that he has left Gaza. I saw he was on Al Jazeera uh, from Doha last night. And I think we've talked about him so many times in the podcast. We've talked up how influential he has been in the world's understanding Mm. behind the scenes of what's happening in Gaza the human cost of the conflict as it stands and the human cost on himself. He has aged a lot. That is still a 24-year-old man. Like it's he's still a 24-year-old man. That he's so young. Yeah. Um, he'd never, like, it was never his intention, I think, to be a, a war correspondent. He was a f- photo journalist or, and content creator for the UN Relief Works Agency uh, in Gaza, you know, working with Palestinian refugees and just documenting life in Gaza until all this began. Uh, and nobody, not least himself, could have imagined what has happened over the time, you know, which has you know transpired since October. Mm. So yeah, it's it's huge. It was everything. Everybody who would have watched his clip of him, yeah. you know, deciding to leave, will have been choked up watching it. And even the tributes from some of his colleagues and friends, uh, some who are staying behind in Gaza, some others mm. who have left previously. It's just, it is very difficult. It's difficult, but it's it's also, there is a lot of people, when I shared that myself, the amount of people were like, I'm really happy for him. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. And, you know, just, he, he, there's nobody who can question his decision to leave, I think, at this point. Yeah. Anyway. But it was, I was saying to you guys the last day that, you know, I found myself in the morning when I wake up, one of the first things I was doing was checking to see if he had posted overnight or if he posted a few hours before all of us would have woken up. And the day that he put up the post about evacuating, I just woke at half five for some reason. I'd never normally, to be fair, be up at half five in the morning. But um, I woke at half five and I just saw this video and the goodbyes and everything. And it was, and I, what I took away from a lot of the goodbyes, Richard, was that um, 
they're so close. There's such a bond there between mm. all of the, you know, friends, colleagues, journalists, that they have been a huge support network to one another throughout all of this. And it's all changed for them again, you know, and those that were saying goodbye to him, you know, describe him as being like their brother, that they, you know, had such a bond and that he made them feel so safe and secure. And that, as you say, it's hard to believe he's 24. Yeah. And it's been Actually, such a... I hadn't realised yeah. his age at all. Actually, the thing that, that most struck me about it, and like how, how desperate it is that this is the situation that he's in, that having been himself a victim of war for the last three and a half months mm. as well as someone who has been documenting that so tirelessly and doing the sort of work that it's increasingly difficult for anyone else to be able to do that when he was saying no I, I have to go like I have to put myself first here once for once yeah. and I need to get out that it was couched with an apology that yeah. it was like I'm sorry that I can't continue to do my work and that I, I feel like I've like I'm letting go of my professional obligations or that I'm letting people down like this. You've done anything but let people down. Days 107 days in the middle of, of the depth of it. Like there's no there's no working hours there. There's no like occasional Sunday off to catch no. a breather. Like that is relentless. And for him to still feel like he had to couch his his departure with an apology for not being able to go any further was firstly a measure of the man, but also just how gut-wrenching that is, that mm-hmm. he still feels like there's such a value to the work that he's so sorry that there's so many fewer people around now to be able to do that work. The question I suppose a lot of people are asking now is who will tell the stories that Motaz has gone, you know, but there are so many friends and colleagues already. You can see that he's amplifying their accounts. I mean, Motaz has like 18.4 million followers. As Massive, yeah. Of that. Um, and you can already see that he's sort of still sharing content via his friends that are, are still in Gaza. Yeah. There's a lot of really good journalists who are still there. A couple of names uh, spring to mind. Hamdan Dadu, who is, of course, um, his uncle is YL, who we've yeah. talked about before. He's a cameraman with Al Jazeera. Um, he is particularly caught up in the middle of it in Khan Yunus at the moment, which is uh, being quote unquote encircled by the IDF. Hind as well, who is very much like describes herself as almost a sister mm. uh, to Motaz. Uh, Wizard Bissan on Instagram. She is incredible oh, journalist. Incredible, um, yeah. Done incredible work there. Uh, Noor Harazine, another name as well, who was, um, she, she was one of the people who's been written up the most by like Time Magazine and the New York Times in terms of the war unfolding on Instagram in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people might have seen her clip only a few days ago where she evacuated her children through the Rafa crossing mm. and she made the decision herself to stay. And she actually posted yesterday, I think it was, um, basically saying people need to stop second guessing the, the, the individual decisions of the journalists who are there mm-hmm. or the individual life circumstances which lead them to either evacuate or to stay. Um, so some people had clearly been on to her saying, well, why aren't you getting out with your kids? Mm. Like. You can't. Yeah. Everybody has an individual set of circumstances. Um, and it is, it is again worth, worth stressing how many journalists in uh, Gaza have been killed. That is something which um, it, it bears repeating every time we do the podcast, how many journalists have been killed. And there's a lot of accusations that journalists have been individually targeted. Uh, there was a really good Channel 4 News report um, by Porrick O'Brien looking into uh, a couple of the deaths of journalists there. But there was a point I wanted to make as well because there was uh, there's an ITV clip which has gone viral over yeah. the last 24 hours. Yeah. Um, of It was an ITV, a cameraman working for ITV captured uh, a group of men who were walking behind a white flag and an Israeli sniper shot one of them very much, you know, right in front of the camera. Um, and While they were holding a white flag. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 
shared that. A lot of people had shared that. And the amount of people who got on to me then saying, how come none of this is covered in the mainstream news? And the first response is obviously, well, this is the mainstream news because it's ITV. There was literally an ITV watermark on the video. Yeah, and it's just, it's just I'm, like, I don't want to get at people, but there's a, there's a question of media literacy here. And I don't really like the phrase media literacy. But it's not for to be con- it's not condescending. It's not condescending. It's just more about clarifying because this I is think. this is the way conversations unfold about mm. journalism and how it's portrayed and what's covered. And I think the the mainstream media, if you want to use that term and phrase, has in many ways gotten a lot of Gaza completely wrong. It has not focused on the human cost of things. It has focused on you know the wrong body counts and things like that over the last time. Nobody's without blame here. Mm-hmm. But because things are shared online, does not make them main. You know they're not the mainstream. You know, people sharing clips online saying, oh, you wouldn't get this in the mainstream media. Mm. Most of the accounts and things that they're sharing are stuff which has either been shared by the mainstream media, is produced by the mainstream media, or it's amplified by it. So there's just a question around that that always is important to do. I even saw some people after I shared that said, you wouldn't find this on the British media. You know, you'd find, as you can see, you're, you're sharing it because you're the Irish. I mean, it's like, again, yeah, it's, a, it's a British TV outlet. This uh, is the thing, yeah. But the, wa- the ITV watermark was on it. I don't, like, for people to understand, if you're looking at a video and there's a watermark of the broadcaster who is, you know, who is in possession or ownership of the, that content, you know, yeah. that's you know that's a clear way to know that that's where it came from. We were actually saying before we we, we got into this chat that we there, there might be space for us to do a special episode some point down the line about the whole area of media literacy and what people might not realise mm. about you know the way in which the media has to operate because of the law and ethics and everything else. But without getting too deep into all of that, one thing that is worth saying when people see the likes of that and they kind of wonder why there isn't saturation coverage of that video, why aren't you seeing it on our bulletins or on RT's mm. bulletins or on the BBC? Mm. Well, it's because the video was taken by ITV and the video and they belongs own it. to ITV and they own yeah. it. And in some circumstances, particularly in America, where they've got this illegal principle of fair use, there's certain grounds upon which you can say, well, actually, no, I have a certain right to reuse this for my own content news telling purposes. Mm. We don't have that kind of codified right over in this part of the world. So that's that's ITV's property. ITV paid a cameraman to go over there and take that footage and ITV deserve better than to have somebody else then just repackage it and use it in their own story. Yeah, yeah. it's a straight up copyright. You can't just nick you something. If, if, if ITV and that ITV cameraman who's in Gaza risking his life mm. to bring this out, if that is just nicked by all other news organisations, well, what's the point? What's yeah. the point of any of us doing our job? One thing I think the, the, the international media, I think, has failed on and has been, you know, online sources have been better at who aren't part of the media is the treatment of Gaza detainees. And that's something which we're slowly seeing people catch up, catch up with. Mm. So people have seen for weeks and weeks and weeks footage and photographs of uh, Gaza Palestinian men uh, stripped with their hands bound behind their backs, being led away, uh, sitting down under guard, armed guard, being cajoled and jeered by Israeli soldiers. That's something which is only now, I think, actually properly being caught up with. I know the New York Times only wrote about it yesterday, which is not good enough, really, given this stuff is there and it's accessible. Mm. So, like, it, this isn't just, oh, I'm protecting the mainstream media. The mainstream media has failed multiple times in this situation mm. in ways that it shouldn't do. And there is a double standard, as Leo Varadkar talked about, in terms of how the world has treated Gaza and has treated this situation and how the media has also treated it as well. Totally agree. I think as well, just to pick up on your point as well, Gavin, about the rules around taste and decency, because I think people should probably understand that as well, is that there are certain rules within broadcast journalism, within broadcast news, that, you know, we're not, you know, people will share, and I spoke about this at the start of, of the situation in Gaza, people will talk about how, uh, how can we don't see these raw pictures on the news every evening? And sometimes these are pictures that are of naked, dead children being pulled from the rubble and people are saying, well, we don't see these on the news in the evening. Well, we couldn't show you that on the news in the evening because, you know, first of all, I suppose there has to be a question around um, 
the child's right to dignity and death as well. And the fact that, you know, identifying somebody in that situation and showing somebody in that situation, there's a level of taste and decency that has to be protected, mm. you know. And that's why you'll see sometimes people will say, well, how come some of the pictures are blurred? Well, sometimes the blurring is there to protect the modesty and the dignity of the individual at the centre mm. of those pictures as well. And I think we don't often talk about that. And I think that's an important mm. one to say as well. Plus the fact that there, there's a, a level of, um, you know, agency that a, a user oftentimes has chosen to follow certain accounts mm. so that you therefore there's an implicit idea that you've opted into seeing certain photos. Yes. Yeah, and even like on Instagram, know yeah. what they're you can adjust it yeah. so that the videos don't automatically play once you scroll across them. Like, there's ways you can do that. Versus on television, at tea our, time. Our, our bulletins are at 5.30 yeah. and 7. They, they're very much at, at family viewing times and it wouldn't be appropriate to just have children immediately exposed to that kind of mm-hmm. graphic detail without there being some level of prior warning or the ability yeah. to update. So it's not so that, I, exactly. So I think the point is that it's not that, you know, it's, not say, censoring, like, it's not yeah. censoring, it's yeah. not censoring, but it is an element of taste and decency for sure. And I'm like, when, for example, yesterday I was assigned to do uh, the daily report on Gaza from the news desk. So I was on the, the foreign desk essentially yesterday doing that. And the pictures that we have to uh, available to us in terms of our, our editing, you know, we are part of a package that, you know, buy in international footage from yeah. the associated Press and CNN and the likes of this. And, you know, the kind of pictures that we're getting through you know, they're not going to be the same as the ones that the likes of Motaz and his colleagues are going to share from the ground. So you are sort of challenged in some ways when you're not on the ground somewhere to sort of tell a story with the pictures that you have as well. And I think people don't always understand that, you know. No, and it is why, again, you have to pay tribute to the journalists who are there Definitely. because Israel is not allowing international journalists yeah. into Gaza. Yeah. So we can't send cameras there. Sky News can't send cameras there. Yeah. They can hire people who are in Gaza and they have done that previously. But... This is a big problem with why the world, you know, the world's media is under criticism is because they don't have access mm. is another big problem. Do you want know to really quickly, I know this wasn't actually on the list, but just to point to you, those pictures that came in yesterday that actually were so moving. Um, there were fo- pictures that came in from Gaza yesterday which showed children watching, uh, you know, Cars, the movie, the cartoon mm-hmm. movie Cars. And essentially a couple of local youth workers have put up what was a sheet and someone got a projector from somewhere and was showing Cars just in the evening time just to distract the children from what has been the most horrific time. And to see their little faces smiling up watching that cartoon Actually, I found it really moving yesterday to see those pictures. I think that actually, you know, to see that little bit of, you know, escapism and protection of their young little minds for a few moments was really, really sweet, actually. And even some of the youth workers were doing like, you know, dancing with them and sort of just trying to do anything to give Mm -hmm. them a little bit of distraction. And to see those pictures coming in, actually, I haven't seen a lot of that. And I thought it was, you know, so sweet in so many ways, but just unbelievably sad. Yeah. And really tells you, like we've talked about this so many times before, this war is about children and children are the ones that are most deeply affected at the centre of all of this. When you consider how how uh, Disney Plus is a fairly common part of a lot of people's lives, mm. it doesn't feel like a luxury to be throwing it on and for that to be like this one moment of respite yeah. in so many people's like profoundly bleak existences. Yeah. Doesn't it just show you how lucky those of us who aren't in a war zone have it? Gavin, can I just ask you in relation to Ireland and its support for South Africa, what's happening there or why are, why is Ireland not outwardly yeah, well, there with that? It's a dominant thing in the Dáil this week because the government uh, tore up the agenda to table a motion on this topic itself on Tuesday and then there's a Social Democrats motion today, Wednesday as well. Um, the long and the short of it is that the government is not ruling out um, t- making an intervention in South Africa's case. I was about to say uh, siding with South Africa but the government has been trying to make the point that actually a lot of what people understand by, you know, making interventions at the court is a bit of a misunderstanding that the people perceive that Germany is making an intervention and it's taking Israel's side or that the US and the UK are going to take Israel's side on this. 
cases before the ICJ when other countries get involved, they are not necessarily endorsing the side of one, one call or the other. What they're actually doing, or at least the intention of what they're doing, is clarifying the law, that they're looking for clarification on what's going on. So long story short, Ireland says that it's not ruling out and will strongly consider making an intervention in the South Africa case. But that now is not the procedural time to do that, that they reckon that other countries like Israel have basically jumped the, or that, um, like Germany, excuse me, are basically jumping the gun by saying they're going to do something before the time is right to do it. That we, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the hearings, there'll be an interim ruling, possibly in the next couple of days. Israeli media seem to think they might be pretty imminent. And then there is a broader submissions are made, like South Africa goes away and puts together a more comprehensive case. And then other countries can decide whether they want to make observations or interventions or not. Ireland says when the time comes, it's completely open to doing that. But basically what you've seen is the government trying to come push back against a lot of the online momentum saying, you know, if South Africa can do this, why can't we? Or why well, can't we take too, a more assertive role? Not really, no. Like, I mean, I think there's there is a criticism which is there and it's open. The government has left itself open too in that, you know, Michal Martin is the Minister for Foreign Affairs. He wrote in this window uh, this past weekend explaining Ireland's position on the ICJ case. He's previously said, well, we can't just throw around the term genocide willy-nilly. Mm. And yet, but previous tweets a couple of years ago or even a year ago about the situation in Ukraine, calling it openly genocide. So that is an open criticism. Uh, which is um, probably fairly fair fair game for people to use. Um, it is going to be interesting to see how it does play out. Uh, Ireland has made the point as well. The government has made the point in the last couple of days about the fact that it has not been a stranger to making interventions, particularly on the Palestinian issue, uh, pointing to current and ongoing uh, cases around the West Bank in particular. So that is something to keep in mind as well. But it is something which I think the public or the the opposition parties who are r- r- rallying around the what was the Social Democrats' motion on this? They do believe the public is on side with this. Mm. I think there is a, there's enough indications that a lot of people within the public do think that this is genocide. There's a valid case there, which is actually the term Leo Varadkar descri- used to describe the South African case as valid yesterday. Um, so mm. that is something which is worth bearing in mind as well. What's interesting is all the while this whole consideration around The Hague mm. is going on is that Israel is continuing to isolate itself or to alienate some of its people who have backed it including the European Union. So European leaders, uh, including Michal Martin, were there for a presentation by the Israeli foreign minister just a matter of days ago about how this all comes to an end. Mm. When do we get the ceasefire, which we've been asking for? How, what are Israel's plans for Gaza when the war is over? What does the future look like? Hmm. The Israeli foreign minister presented them a video amongst his presentations of, here's an artificial island we could build out in the middle of the Mediterranean and all the Palestinians could live there, which is completely farcical. And Joseph Borrell, uh, the foreign affairs bigwig for the European Union, effectively said, well, look, the Israeli foreign minister would be better off using his time discussing how to keep his country safe and discussing the huge amount of human casualties in Gaza. And I think that's something which the West is finding itself increasingly under pressure about how it's handled this. I think it's slowly eking towards a tougher line on Gaza. Netanyahu says he's never going to accept a Palestinian state. Joe Biden says, well, he should. He doesn't care. But Netanyahu has bragged about telling Joe Biden that mm. that's not going to happen on his watch. But all the while, all these things that we've been talking about are happening. The, the, you know, the misuse of prisoners and the mistreatment of prisoners, the fact that 80% uh, of there's a huge spike in miscarriages in Gaza because there's no reproductive treatment left in that the medical system has completely failed. It's going to be impossible in the future for European and Western leaders to say that they had no idea what happened in Gaza. If at some point in the future, whether it's in The Hague or something else, that there is a finding against Israel for what happened in Gaza, there's going to be no excuse whatsoever for European leaders and anyone around the world to say that they had no idea what was happening.
So if you haven't heard about the reverse vending machines, then perhaps you're living under a rock because I feel like all we're hearing about now is reverse vending machines. But Richard, do tell us, what are they? Yeah, if you haven't seen them in your local <laughs> supermarket at this point in time, uh, well, maybe they won't be coming to your local supermarket. Oh, you don't actually need them. If you haven't shown up yeah. by now, you're not going to yeah. get them. Because yeah. they're there. They're there everywhere. Um, but this is one of the biggest changes we're going to see in terms of recycling and consumption in this country. It's definitely the biggest since the uh, plastic bag charge, the 15 cent on the plastic, plastic bags, because it's going to have a huge impact um, on Ireland's recycling uh, index and the recycling that all of us individually do. Like I just say, Gavin and I have got cups here that are biodegradable just before anyone makes a point. Possible, yeah. possible, yeah. 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 Well, I did use my keep cup for tea this morning, so there's coffee in this now, but right, go on. Good on you. But okay, so what's going to happen is you will have seen this in other, you might have seen this in other countries around the world. Denmark, Germany, you'll make the mm. point as well, Gavin. Uh, basically, you get, there's going to be an addition onto prices of, say, a can of sparkling cola. Not to use any brand names, but it's going to be like sparkling cola. Yeah, so a can of can of cola is going to up by fifteen cent. So if it's one fifty now, it's going to be one sixty five. Then once mm-hmm. this is in place from February first, now twenty five cent will be added onto containers of five hundred milliliters or more, i.e., slightly bigger bottle of Coke mm. or can of Guinness or something like that. Pint bottle of yeah. alcohol. And the thing is, you're going to bring all these back. Is the, is the idea is that you're to get to get that extra pay that you're putting or that extra money that you're putting on to the price of these individual day to day products? Mm. You're going to get your money back by bringing them to your local supermarket, putting them all into the big machine, and getting a little voucher out which you presented the till. Uh, and basically, the job well done. You've helped Ireland meet its recycling targets, which we're well well behind at this point in time. Okay, well. So a couple of things, in theory, good idea, I guess, you know, obviously in theory, you know, makes makes a bit of sense. But in reality, I would say, first of all, the thing that will be challenging for me on a personal level would be not squashing the bottles because, you know, we're trying to get everything mm. to your recycling bin, <laughs> yeah. you squash everything down. Well, so see, the, I think well, that's a change of the, like, this attitude. This is a part of it. So basically for every three plastic bottles that are sold in Ireland, two of them don't end up making it into the green bin. So whatever about the ones that do make it into mm. your household recycling, it, well, if you've crinkled them up, but they might be unrecoverable or they might not be recyclable at all. And that's no good to anyone. But a third of bottles don't make it that far anyway. Or they make it into landfill or they make it into some other bin that doesn't get recycled. Huh. So the thinking is that by, by making you, uh, incentivizing you to use this system instead, whereby if you return the bottle intact to the shop, you get money back, that it incentivizes you to take care of the other 30% of bottles. And then mm-hmm. ultimately you might have a higher turnover and retention rate. In practice, though, like well, in principle, I mean, I, I lived in Germany, like I said, and this was commonplace when I was there um, on Erasmus like 18 years ago. If you're buying a crate of, of beers, you, you might go into a supermarket and you buy a big crate load, 24 bottles of beer, and each bottle would have a deposit on it of 25 cents and you'd pay a couple of euro for the plastic crate. And then the next time you're going shopping, you just bring them back and you get the money back. So although when you're buying a whole crate, spending 25 cents on each bottle might then end making the crate six or seven euro dearer, but you get the money back the next time you bring it down. Mm. So it's a little bit like when you go to a festival now and you might be asked to have a, like a retainer, like a keep cup sort of thing or like a particular decorative pint glass. So the first time you go and get your pint, it might be six euro plus two euro for the container or a fiver, but you get the fiver back if you return at the end of the day mm. or you pay the extra fiver. So it's not like your first pint is 11 euro. Your pint is six euro plus the price of the container and you get it back. Provided That's basically you do the what right it thing. is yeah. on, a, on a nationwide scale. I love that but, we're 18 years behind Germany on this. And we're this, oh yeah, we're 18 yeah. years. But, but, here, but the, 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 the snag is, well, if you already have a household green bin, and you're already quite conscientious and you haven't crushed your bottles and that's the way in which all your plastic goes back, mm. they've now made it more inconvenient to recycle because instead of just having it intact and in a bin outside your door, 
now you might have to bring it to the next supermarket, which also means you're less likely to take public transport because you have to drive there yeah. with your recycling to get it out of the back. Plus, there's also the, like, because it's a new label, you have to do new labeling. So they're basically, mm. again, from February 1st, you have to have everything with this new return labeling. So again, there's an added cost. The scale of having to do this as a smaller business is bigger. Does it also mean that older products are basically unsellable? That you had stuff that hadn't moved off the shelves now? That yeah, you, I, well, I wonder about that. I think you probably can, but you're, you're still going to have to just stick them in the green bin because it's not going to scan. Like if you put that yeah. into the return machine, it's not going to read it because it doesn't have the right sort of label on it. Then does that get sold so for the le- like less 15 cents? Like yeah, I, mean, I guess they I have to like know. sell off the remaining stock without the extra deposit price That's, factored in. Oh, are, are some of them maybe might have the return labels? Actually, that's not, we don't know. Like, we don't know. Let's not get that's, yeah. that's oh, the that's The problem is I was on to return about the the issues which have been raised to me by representatives of the craft beer industry. They said that there was certainly complications around smaller producers, and this is one of the issues with it, but they didn't actually full-on address what I had asked about 500 euros. Is that fair? Or is Mm. it per company you just pay 500 euros? So, look, I actually think that the scheme, something like this has been needed for a long time. Anybody who's walked around and seen bottles and, you know, Mm. just sitting around... You know, they you know, bottles of water just hanging around on greens and on streets and all that sort of stuff. Knows this has been something that's needed, mm-hmm. and we only need to look to the plastic bag levy and the impact that that actually had mm-hmm. in cleaning up all of our towns, cities, and villages. That this could be something which is quite good, but practicalities and all that sort of stuff will come into it. But like, I suppose if you think about it, we bring our glass bottles to the bottle bank. You know what I mean? We do do that. We do, yeah. Like, you know, I call it the water shame in our house, but you know what I mean? Like, you do sort of like fill up all your wine bottles over a period of time and then do your sort of drive down to the bottle bank. So. Actually, this is probably better because you're going to get some money back. Whereas, like, you're not getting money back for the bottle yeah. bank trip with Although the glass it's, bottles. It's now dearer up front because if you if you particularly favour the the cheapest six euro bottle of wine that might be in the supermarket mm. now, that's six twenty five. Or people who already feel like they've been stung by minimum unit pricing, who now can't buy a like a six pack of cans for anything cheaper than is it eight euro thirty something is the minimum unit mm. price for that. That effectively now the cost of that is. 980 something up front because you have to pay 150 for the cans that you won't yeah. get back until afterwards. Some people will feel like up front that if you're only a yeah. small time consumer that it's actually pro rat, it's a big increase. Well, it is. The only one final point I make on it is just that, um, well, first of all, I think the point you made about the plastic bag levy is good, right? But also I say that as somebody who never has a bag in her car when she goes to the shop and it drives me <laughs> mad. So then I'm the person who's like trying to struggle to get everything out in one arm mm. and dropping like eggs outside the supermarket has happened. You're that, you're <laughs> that like, person yeah. that's in the ad at the till bin, like next I'm time just worst. bring the drop. Person. I am yeah. the worst and do you know what the worst part is do you remember when we lived together and we had so many of those bags for life like we actually had, had like, an say, extortionate say amount of, them, think, of yeah. bags for life and you none of them, them were in my car <laughs> I mean it was we had this whole entire press in our kitchen when we lived together that was just stuffed with bags for life yeah. which we divvied up when we went our separate ways and they all live in my house now and I still don't remember to bring them but anyway a lot of it is, is sort of like change behaviour and that, that's, no, on like, like, that's on me that's on me it's fair as well to point out the, the potential hitches for it because yeah. there were, this is, but this is, it's worth remembering yeah. when there was the plastic bag levy and when there was the smoking ban, everybody picked every hole in the world on it and both yeah. of them ended up pretty good. So Absolutely, there's form yeah. for these things having good impact down mm. the line. So we'll see. We'll wait and see anyway. No, definitely. Gavin, the referendums are coming up. They are. Us. Yeah. Um, wow. That, that, that's Just, sprung yeah, up very no, quickly. I'm, I'm we like, got a roll. Yeah, no, 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 no. We spend more time talking about reverse spending machines than we thought we might have. So there will be referendums, two referendums in Ireland six weeks from this coming Friday. So that'll be March the 8th, which is also International Women's Day, which is a date the government has chosen because the two referendums, the wording of which has now been officially signed off by the Oireachtas, uh, will be taking place on that day. And both of them are along themes of uh, the family and how the 
the family is defined and in one instance particularly the constitutional vision of the role of women. So there are two different uh, ballot papers that people will be given. One of the proposals is about the link between uh, marriage and family. So right now the constitution says that basically marriage, these are not the direct words, but mm. I'm, I'm faithfully paraphrasing, that basically marriage is the, the fundamental building block upon which family is built. And then the family is protected elsewhere in the constitution. The government wants to get rid of that. It still wants to have family uh, or marriage recognised as an institution worthy of protection and of legal defence, but that they want to specifically recognise that families can be built either on marriage or on what they call other durable relationships. Mm -hmm. Durable relationships is a phrase you'll probably hear a lot about uh, in the coming weeks because that effectively is the battleground upon which that campaign will be won or lost. That might be beyond the scope of what we can talk about now, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll get there. The other question is about the role of women in the home. Currently, mm. the Constitution says that um, the state recognises that a woman gives to society something which couldn't be otherwise achieved by virtue of her uh, work within the home. Mm -hmm. a slightly 1920s and 1930s view of womanhood, but that is the prevailing thing at the time. Mm. Um, and elsewhere then it says, therefore, the state shall try to do whatever it can so as to preserve women from having to work outside the home to the neglect of their duties in the home. This is the reason why it's on March their, the 8th. Their duties and it, it is not the place for, particularly in broadcast, it's not the place for journalists to, to tell people what the arguments are for and against. But there are two ways of viewing that. And this is, again, how the, the uh, referendum will be won or lost. Um, there's two ways that basically you can summarise feminism. Very conscious, by the way, that I'm certainly a man describing how, how feminism is no, summarised. No, 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 Gavin, but, go But here ahead. we are. Good luck, Gavin. <laughs> you can either, view, you can either view feminism as, or as a combination of the two, uh, celebrating or tr trying to eliminate the practical obstacles in the way of women and being able to have the uh, women achieve as much in society as men can. There's one view of feminism. The other is that you should celebrate the differences that there are between the sexes and that you shouldn't try to pretend that there is a difference because there are fundamental anatomical, biological and social differences between what men and women can achieve in society. So do you want to mark International Women's Day by getting rid of a clause which specifically uh, recognises a role that women are envisaged as performing or do you think that role is archaically framed and it should be gotten rid of and that it's a bit of a relic from times that we don't live in anymore um, that's basically the, the the ground upon which it's going to be broken up but the important thing to know actually is that there are two separate ballots because people will talk about these things as if they're one and the same and that they're slightly interchangeable mm. they're two different questions to be put in two ballots side by side uh, six weeks from Wednesday from Friday why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. People watching this tonight, they think I'm interviewing, many of them, a, a violent killer who has literally gotten away with murder. Uh, well, I'm not.
Um, and, you know, I was falsely accused, uh, falsely put in the frame from, I think, almost day one. And it's, you know, that was 25, coming up for 25 years ago, my life and my partner's life and a lot of people's lives have been completely, you know, disrupted. But I can assure you or your listeners that I have nothing to do with this crime. Mm. That, obviously, I'm aware that people are entitled to think whatever they, they want to mm. think. And that was Ian Bailey speaking to Caleb Fitzpatrick on the big interview back in September of 2021 now. So um, most of you will have heard by now that Ian Bailey died on Sunday. Um, he suffered a heart attack. I suppose this is a case that has gone on for 27 years now, Richard. Um, and the reality, I suppose, for Sophie Tuscan de Plante's family is that, you know, they will perhaps never get the answers that they have been so badly seeking for such a long time. Yeah, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. Yeah, and it is the fact that from the point of view of Sophie Toscan de Plantier's family, they believe that the, 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 the full truth of this has died with Ian Bailey. Mm. They have always maintained uh, that he had the answers to this. They believe he was, in fact, the murderer as the French court convicted him of the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier uh, in West Cork. Um, the investigation, the cold case investigation, I think it is, people are often are now talking about this quite openly. They are speculating as to whether or not, you know, we ever will get a full answer of it in terms of provable, this is what the answer to this long-standing mystery, which has, for better or for worse, captivated the country for mm -hmm. 27 years, as you say, whether we will get that. Now, the Gardaí say that they are continuing that investigation, that they will not stop it, uh, and that they still believe that they will result, that their investigations will result in a file being sent on to the DPP on this matter. But... Um, it is obviously a very difficult day, I think, mm. the news of Ian Bailey's death for people connected to Sophie Toscan Duplantier, who have been just dragged through this situation against their will and who've been fighting for justice all the way through. And they've had so many hitches and, you know, potential leads come and go mm. and, you know, down points along the way. Like they didn't ask for any of what happened over the years, no. whether it be, you know, the, there was the, you know, the libel trial, there was, you know, multiple investigations, there was a huge amount of scrutiny and media coverage, some of which might have been, might have been quite invasive at times. But I can only imagine the maelstrom of, of emotions that they've been through at this point. Yeah, I remember when I first started in what was TV3 at the time, I interviewed uh, Sophie Toscan de Plante's brother. Um, and, you know, at, th at that time, you know, they were just sort of on an annual basis, they would come out and they would try and make a fresh appeal for information. And, you know, for her son, Pierre-Louis, I know he's come back and forth quite a lot to school and has a great relationship with the people in the community there. But, you know, there's this constant sort of desperate seeking of answers on, like, I think from their perspective, they're in no doubt and they certainly feel that Ian Bailey was responsible. He, for his entire life throughout all this since 1996, has denied his involvement in it. Mm. Um, but it's it's difficult for them now in terms of where do they go from here? Gavin, you know, we've heard so many different accounts from people, you know, a lot of colleagues who are still working on the road were sort of like mm. journalists that were working on this at the time, weren't they, when when it all happened in 1996? Yeah, including my colleague at Leinster House, Senna Maloney, who was the crime correspondent with the Star at the time. And actually, Senna ended up having a an oddly close relationship with Ian Bailey because Ian Bailey at the time was working as a freelance journalist and would regularly offer 
copy to the star and get in touch with Zenon and say, right, I've got an article with the latest on the guard investigation. And Zenon actually has written quite eloquently about this in the Irish Independent this week. It's worth tracking down his piece that was in mm. Monday's paper about all of this. Um, the natural instinct of somebody who is hearing a local a stringer, as we call them in the parlance, um, phoning you up with all this this really sensitive data. The natural conclusion is that, well, they must be really well in, uh, integrated with the guards on the ground. They must have a really close relationship with the guardee that are overseeing all the forensic investigation and the likes. And Senan writes about how he went down, having been given all this information from Ian Bailey, presuming that Ian Bailey would then be able to introduce him to the local guards and to maybe sort of transfer some of that that familiarity. And actually discovering when he went down there that Ian Bailey was very diffident to the guards and that the guards were very diffident to him and that he didn't really have any kind of very close relationship with them at all. And that, that immediately um, was a bit of a, a red flag to Senan as regards perspective mm. involvement mm. in all of this. Um, his death is, is a curious thing for those of us in the media to cover now because he's kind of simultaneously both an innocent and a guilty man because he was never convicted or even faced trial or charged with her murder in, uh, Ireland, in this yeah. jurisdiction, Ireland, yeah. yet was convicted of it in France. In now, absentia. albeit in France in absentia because yeah. he didn't travel there, so no defence was entered, so nobody entered any kind of case on his behalf. So the court heard the prosecution case and didn't hear anything to counter what the prosecutors were saying. So you might argue that was going to be what was going to happen anyway. But he's simultaneously guilty and innocent for the same crime. Um, but you're right, that the thing that the, the, you just said, Richard, really, uh, it hadn't settled with me this way. But that when the family didn't ask, because no one ever asks them to put through a no. process like no, this. But, but murder is so relatively infrequent. Like, it, it makes the news, but it makes the news because of its relative rarity. Um, and in, in many murder cases, it might take a couple of years, but that very quickly afterwards, a prime suspect is identified and it might take some years for a prosecution to be put together and for a trial eventually to happen. But more often than not, someone is brought to justice for killing somebody else. And it is so remarkably unusual for it to go 27 years without that happening. In Sophie's case, you can understand the, the the desperate anguish now of the family that think that this might be the end of the road as regards any investigations. Yeah, sadly, I think that, you know, there's been a lot of cases involving women that are left unsolved. And that's the reality of this is that, you know, Sophie Tuscan de Planty was a 39 year old woman who lost her life. And actually for so long, we only spoke about, not that we only spoke about, but Ian Bailey's name was the name that was spoken about for so long. And actually, you know, there could have been far more stories told about Sophie Tuscan de Planty and, and, far, and far more about the person that she was that should mm. have been acknowledged. Yeah, and I think that is something which, I mean, a lot of column inches have been already you know, spent over the last number of days since Ian Bailey died. Even Frank Buttermer, who represented Ian Bailey and has maintained that he believes Ian Bailey was innocent of the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier, said that he was a complicated guy mm. and his quote-unquote black humour in multiple times saying to different people that he himself did it, uh, saying that he went too far and he killed Sophie Toscan de Plantier. So that created an ongoing narrative around it. Even the fact that Ian Bailey described himself as the chief suspect for the murder conveyed this story further and further and further and further, even while there was no prosecution ongoing for it. There's multiple stories as well, Mick Clifford, I think, and other journalists as well, who've written about the fact that Ian Bailey courted media attention for this, mm -hmm. which is something which probably shouldn't sit well with a lot of people, mm. given that, again, as you say, Zara, there was a woman at the centre of this who was killed, who should still be sitting uh, in West Cork, you know, enjoying her time there. Uh, but that was sadly taken away from her. 
Well, it's been another exciting year for Ireland uh, at the Oscars. 11 nominations. Delighted. 12. Yeah. 12. Well, 12, you oh, yeah, can Killian Murphy. Oh, Killian Murphy, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, still, even better again. Even better again. Can I fully admit that I actually almost overlooked Killian Murphy's nomination? Uh, so, um, so matter of fact, was it? Like, so, uh, of course, Killian's going to get nominated. Oh, Killian's yeah, favourite to win it. Given but actually, it was such yeah. a given that when I was li- li- listening out to see were there any other Irish nominations or nominations. Kind of overlooked it. Like Killian Murphy, of course, is going to get it. Actually, forgot to count it. Well, Virgin Media News reporter Alan Leonard was at Element Pictures yesterday, just as all the nominations were coming in, and Poor Things was absolutely sweeping the boards in terms of those nominations. And she spoke to Ed Guiney just as he got off the phone. This is so cool to Emma Stone. Let's take a listen. Just off the phone to her. Yeah, 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 yeah. Delighted. Uh, delighted. Yeah. No, it's um, yeah more than more than we hoped for. No, it's great. Yeah, she's uh, she's yeah she's really happy, delighted. Uh, she's great. I mean, she's obviously she was our lead actor, and um, also we produced the film with her, so she's very much part of it. And um, yeah, and we're yeah we're thrilled. It's great. Yeah, yeah. I just love the casual. Yeah, like she's great. She's our lead actor. I'm like that's that's pretty cool. That's there, pretty yeah. impressive. One of the biggest stars it? in the world. Isn't it mad that we we're almost a little blasé? About an Irish produced film getting this many, but we should not be. We should no, not. No, but we be. shouldn't be. But that I think that there's there's a certain level of like normalised expectation now, particularly in the wake of is it only as recently as last year where yeah. Banshees and yeah. and Colleen Kuhn, uh, where that there were so many nominations between them that we really mm. thought it was going to yeah. be a golden hole for Ireland that ended up not quite materialising. But, but the that, nominations, Gavin, are huge. Like you, like it's huge. I mean, like I suppose and Richie Bainham, remember for yes, Way of yeah, Water yeah. last year from Tala won mm-hmm. the Oscar. I personally went in and dragged mm-hmm. him out of the after party to talk to us on Ireland Day. And you forgot like, to ask him to hold the statue. No, I got her to hold the yeah, statue. Yeah, no, but for me to hold, to hold it. it. Yeah, yeah, I know. Actually, it didn't occur to me. Actually, yeah. I was up, up to my eyes. But uh, like Richard, it's so major. And I said this last year. I feel like I'm repeating myself again. But the Americans, first of all, think that Ireland is such a great destination in terms of making films, in terms of the talent in the film industry, not just on camera but off camera. That you know, we're this teeny tiny little country, and we are quite a big deal in all of this. And that's that's amazing. It is great, and it's great to see people like Ed Guiney, like Robbie Ryan, the cinematographer for poor things uh, which is the film which got those 11 nominations recognised on this level because they are amongst the best Mm. in the world at what they do and that's the story of Element really it isn't just about films being made here it's that they are an international best in class company Mm. at what they do and they are helping directors like Yorgos Lanthimos of poor things make these films and make them happen in just an incredible way and they've now their hall of nominations over the years is really, really remarkable for yeah. a company which is headquartered on O'Connell Street in Dublin. Like, mm. you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, so it's just brilliant to see that. And, you know, you point to last year and the, the the amount of nominations and success they had last year. An Irish Goodbye as well, one of the, which was yeah. a, a great, great story from last year. And again, as you say, Gavin, Killian Murphy, we have now, this is our best chance of ever having an Irish actor win the best actor prize. Mm. We've never had an Irish born actor do that. Mm. Um, We've given up a claim in Daniel Day-Lewis now at this point. Have we? <laughs> uh, we well, look, we'll take him as naturalised, but like a, yeah. a, a, an Irish-born actor has never won it mm. before. And now he is in what is being tipped as a neck-and-neck race with Paul Giamatti from the holdovers to win this. 
Uh, I think it'd be great if he won it. I love Paul Giamatti's work, but it would mm. be great for Killian to, to take it. It's a sentimental tug of war, not knowing which of the two of them you'd rather have it, because Paul Giamatti's just so generally likable anyway, isn't Yeah, it? I haven't seen the holdovers yet, because which is the film he's nominated for, because yeah. it's set at Christmas. And I think once you're past Christmas, <laughs> it's hard to watch a Christmas-based film. Yeah, mm. fair, but, fair. Besides the, the Irish interest, though, um, I think there was the, the conversation around Barbie has probably been yeah, the, the loudest right. one around it, yeah. uh, which is understandable. I don't think... I, my take on it is, I don't think the conversation would have been as loud if uh, Ryan Gosling hadn't been nominated. And like, it was, there true. wasn't a huge uh, level of expectation that... Margot Robbie would be nominated for Best Actress that Greta Gerwig would be nominated for Director although I think she had a b- bigger case oh, for that I think Greta Gerwig definitely was sort of but like the problem is like you have to take one of five out okay fair so and I don't I haven't seen all the other things I couldn't tell you who to take out yeah. but there's the achievement there of you know such a behemoth mm. of a film was it Greta the, was it the biggest grossing film last year it is yeah. Yeah. So so over a yeah. billion dollars which is a pretty rare thing and when you remember that last year was a year that was marred by the actors and the writers That's strikes right. as yeah, well yeah. so there were fewer items in the box office mm. so there's an argument actually that, that Barbenheimer as a combo basically saved the industry last year because they brought people out to the cinema in a year where it would have been very fallow otherwise so in that light Greta Gerwig making the biggest grossing film of the year and not mm. getting a, a directorial nomination for it is, is a bit odd. Mm. There's also the, this, the, the slightly grim irony that Barbie is about, you know, men getting higher attainment for no, lower inputs. Yeah. And that Greta Gerwig yeah. doesn't get one and Margaret Robbie doesn't get one. That's why I just think, that's why the, and yeah. Ryan Gosling kind of gets two because he also sings a nominee for Best Song. America Ferrera, Ferrera got nominated as well for Best Supporting Actress which yeah. I don't think was the right call either. I don't but think she had a the, Based on the monologue yeah, exactly, about yeah. feminism. I don't think either of those people should have been nominated for it. Well, look, I mean, you can make the argument. The monologue but, was so good though and she yeah. did so well. I don't know. I, I don't yeah, know. Okay. But anyway, Margot Robbie being nominated because Best Picture is producer are the people who were nominated for Best Picture. Okay. She has transitioned so well into a producer. She's also the producer of Saltburn. Her films make crap tons of money and she has done a lot of interviews recently and I find her fascinating because obviously she's well known as a leading actor. Mm. She's talking now about her career and she's moving away from acting. She says, people are tired of looking at me. I want to leave a mark on cinema in terms of what I'm actually putting out there in the films I can help get made. And with a track record in recent years of Barbie and Saltburn, Pretty amazing. Yeah. So yeah, but it's gonna be it's an interesting year. If you're at the shoulder, nobody will be sick of looking at Margot Robbie. Well, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. But like, to be to be at the shoulder of somebody like Greta Gerwig or like Emerald Fennell, who made Saltburn as well, who got Oscar nominated a couple of years ago for Promising Young Woman, like to be at the shoulder of someone like that to learn your craft as a yeah. producer, that's that's a good standing to be in. She's in a good place. She is. That is all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for joining the group chat. Thank you to Patricia Horseman and Gavin Riley. Thank you, Zara King. And Denise Garthmander, Richard Chambers. Thank you very much. I think we need to drop the formalities. Let's talk about that yeah. next week. Right. Thank you to everyone. We're real. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Team and Gallery, uh, Hannah on social media, and we will catch you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.